let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is timeless. It is true. It never goes out of season. It's always appropriate. It's always adequate. It's always sufficient. Thank you for revealing so much to us. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that guides us into all truth, illumines our minds that we can understand what it is that you have revealed. And we ask this morning as we come to this that we would see you, that we would know you aright, that we may obey you rightly and honor you with our lives and with our devotion. In Christ's name, amen. And Revelation 13 is probably um, one of the more unfortunate chapter breaks in the book because 13 is an immediate continuation of chapter 12. There is no break here. And in fact, they, they kind of broke it, uh, the chapter, in the middle of a thought. In chapter 12, in the last part of chapter 12, Satan has been thrown down out of heaven and he realizes that he can't go after the woman. He can't sweep her away indirectly. And so he is, uh, verse 17, so the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. So immediately, he goes over here, and he is standing on the edge of the sea, and he is waiting for something or someone, and that someone appears immediately. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having 10 horns, and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, and his throne, and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act, for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. 
Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. And so here we have Satan on his way to make war with the children of the woman. That is going to be believers. And he's waiting and up comes this beast. Now, when you look at these two, the dragon has how many heads? Seven heads. How many horns does he have? Ten. And he's got diadems somewhere. Where are the dragon's diadems? They are on his heads. Then you have this apparition come up out of the sea. And that apparition has how many heads? Seven. How many horns? Ten. And it's got ten diadems. And the diadems for the beast are on the horns. So you look at these two, and for a moment they look like they're twinsies. And then you realize that the devil, Satan, has got his diadems on the horns and, excuse me, on the heads, and the beast has his diadems on the horns. Now, in Scripture, when it talks about horns, what's it generally referring to? What is a horn? What does it represent? I'm sorry? Nations? Not so much. When... Uh, when in the Psalms you, you talk about David, you know, talking about the horn, what's he referring to? Well, okay, so there's two different things here. There's one, you can sound a horn, the shofar for battle or for calling somebody. That's if it's being used for being an alert, you know, some type of an alert. What else does a horn represent? Not so much the musical instrument. It represents power. It's power. And so, in this case here, the heads are representing kingdoms. The heads are not representing people. They're representing empires. The horns are representing kings. And so you have empires and you can have an empire and have multiple people who can actually be in charge of that empire, right? So for instance, not so much you, you look at Babylon. Babylon had how many kings of real authority? One. There were other Babylonian kings, but they were nothing like Nebuchadnezzar. And so when you look at Rome, Rome had a number of emperors, some probably more powerful than others, some definitely more destructive than others. So when it comes to the heads, those are representing empires. And so when you look at Satan, Satan's royalty, so to speak, his, his crowns are set on the empires. He is the one who's behind a lot of these entities and pushing them forward. The beast, on the other hand, his power is localized in these kings. And these kings are going to ultimately be those who are confederates with him. Does that make sense? 
So, but they are still very, very similar. So when you see the beast, the beast is all about Satan's agenda. He's all about that. And so you're not going to be able to distinguish. They're not going to have two different takes on anything. The beast is Satan's representative, and he is walking in lockstep with the devil. Everything about the beast is anti-God. Everything. And so when you hear the term applied to him, anti-Christ, that makes sense now, doesn't it? Because he, again, he is in opposition to everything about God, Christ, God's plan, God's design for men, God's design for nations, God's design for anything. Now, this beast has some other interesting characteristics when it comes to the beast. There is something else that's unique about him compared to the dragon. The dragon is not described this way. The beast is. And he has characteristics of a leopard. He has, he has feet like a bear. And he's got a mouth like a lion. Now where... May, might you have heard these kinds of descriptions before? Say it louder. Daniel. So, let's go back. Let's go ahead and keep your finger in Revelation and let's go back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, let's start in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was, 
while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. And so here you have, in Daniel's day, Daniel sees four of these beasts come up out of the sea. Now, we're not left to our own interpretation of what it is that he's seeing. If you go down to verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me, <coughs> excuse me, he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings which will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely, that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was large, larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will, <coughs> excuse me, will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. And so here you have Daniel seeing this vision, and he's immediately given an explanation as to what that vision means. So here we are. And remember that at the end of Daniel's prophecy, what was he told to do with his book? All right. Let's go there. Just go to the end of Daniel. In 
Daniel chapter 12. Oh, let's start in verse. Oh, let's start in verse 5. No, let's start earlier. Let's just start at verse 1. Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. So the idea here, Daniel, this is concealed. This is still to remain hidden. The idea being that this is for way down the road from Daniel's perspective. Now, when you get to the book of Revelation with the Apostle John, this time is now not so far away, which is kind of interesting when you think about it because from Daniel to Revelation is about 600 years. And so John's revelation, this revealing, this being made known is now 2,000 years in the rearview mirror for us, and yet God wanted it to be known to those who were alive in John's time. Now, why would he want that to be that way? Why would God want this to be known in the first century to John's readers? They thought it could happen to them. Right. And so, in fact, when John is writing, John's writing this book about 95 AD. That is 30 plus years after Paul wrote the book of 2 Thessalonians. And 2 Thessalonians, Paul is writing that to them. What's the big reason that Paul is writing to that church at that time? What was happening with that church? They were being led to believe that Christ had already come. And they were wigged out, right? Because here they're going, hey, wait a minute. 
we thought we had a handle on our eschatology and now all of a sudden we've got people coming in and saying no 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 no. this resurrection has already happened and paul's going in time out no that can't happen until the man of lawlessness is revealed and until the that who is restraining is removed there's other things that have to go on and take place before this and so this was something that again paul lived in the idea that Jesus could come back at any time in his lifetime. And that has been true now for all of the generations that have gone on before us going back to the first century. It has always been. It could happen now. There's, again, that's the concept of imminence. There's nothing else. There's no trigger event that has to occur in order to then cause the rapture to take place. Make sense? Okay. So John is writing these things, and they are for immediate publication. This is this is not off the press kind of revelation. This is we're going to get this over here, and we immediately want to get it out into circulation so that people can understand and have an understanding of what is going on. So John here sees this beast come up. And the beast has the characteristics of the lion and the bear and the leopard. And so all of those four beasts are somewhat combined into this one. So the visions don't match exactly, yet the same ideas are being communicated. And the big point here is, he then sees something else that is different. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. Now, there is, um, there is some, as with everything in this book, there are multiple perspectives as to what this means when it talks about he sees one of these horns that looks as if it had been slain. So in one, on one hand, you can look at that and go, well, it has the appearance that it had been slain, but really wasn't killed. It, that it really didn't happen. The only problem is, this is the same construction that's used when describing the lamb as if it had been slain. Was Jesus killed? Yes. No question about it. Was he resurrected? Yes. No question about that either. So what is the significance of this horn having the, you know, looking, it's, it's been slain and now it's been healed? Think about, actually hold that thought. Let's get a little further, and then when the next personage gets introduced, maybe this will make a little more sense. The whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? 
you think maybe it's We live in a, in a society that is very wonder-driven, don't we? If something is really incredible, unbelievable, you know, that's a word that runs around here a lot, unbelievable. So somebody gets whacked. Let's... Uh, we just had an assassination this week. The former prime minister of Japan got shot and killed. Think it would catch a few people's attention if all of a sudden, tomorrow morning, we woke up to find him sitting up and talking and carrying on like nothing happened? That might be pretty amazing. And that might get some folks that, that's not something you see every day. And so the idea here that you have a person who receives a fatal wound, and, and when it talks about the wordage here, it's there's a wound and it caused death, and now he's made alive again. Why would be some reasons why people would look at that and say, no, 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 this guy can't be dead and then brought back to life. What would be part of the reasoning for, for thinking that? Okay, it doesn't happen. Think about the, who this is representing. Who's this representing? Is he a good guy or a bad guy? Oh, he's a bad guy. So what, one question that would rise is, who brought him back? That is not a rhetorical question. Well, okay, so on the one hand, you're thinking, well, it's a deception. But that again goes back to what? If it's a deception, then one of two things did not happen. He either didn't really die or... He didn't really come back, okay? That's the two choices, if it's a deception. He either really didn't die or he didn't really come back. Because does Satan have the ability to give life? Does he have the ability to create life? No, he does not. Who does? Well, God does then the other thing that comes onto the table is why would God do that? Why would God allow that? That also is not a rhetorical question. Gunner. Uh, Gunner. Okay, the question is, do we have to have the temple for the man of sin to be revealed? Yes. 
Okay, so the, the comment is then the saints have to be here until the man of sin is revealed. I don't think that's tr uh, true. So let's go back to, let's go over to 2 Thess. 2 Thess 2. chapter 2 let's start in verse 1 now we request you brethren with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy occurs first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved." For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So the idea here is Paul is saying that there are certain things that are going to occur before that happens, but nowhere in here does he say you are going to be here in order to actually witness his coming. So what he's saying is, is that there are things for him to come and for the second coming to occur, different than the rapture. Go ahead. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, so the question is, you know, how much time between the, the one who's restraining is removed and the, the man of lawlessness is revealed? And we don't know the answer to that. It's not, that's very likely not a, um, the saints are removed and 
uh, 15 minutes later, here's the man of lawlessness being revealed. There very likely is going to be a little bit of time there. Because the thing that kicks off the 70th week for Daniel is the signing of the treaty between the man of lawlessness and Israel. That's what actually starts that time clock ticking, is that event. And so, again, when it comes to the removal of the church, that can happen at any moment. Once that occurs, then it seems that other things are going to be set in motion relatively quickly. But again, there's not necessarily a, uh, this happens and then a week later, two weeks later, this occurs over here. Any other questions? We are going to, uh, we're going to really get to that here in a couple of minutes because there's one more piece of the puzzle to put in here in, in order to get to that point. Garth, I think you had something too. The church at Philadelphia? The church at Philadelphia? Right, that's first that's four. Well, okay, so for the tape, uh, the question is, going back to Revelation 3.10, um, is that talking about the rapture of the church and the church being removed um, so that they will not undergo the, uh, the afflictions of the, um, of the tribulation? That verse is often used that way. I believe that that is accurate because uh, that is actually keeping in, in line with um, the focus in the book of Revelation. Um, the church is there up to the end of chapter three. Uh, when you get to chapter four, verse one, there's really no mention of the church for just about the rest of the book. Everything is focusing on Israel. Everything is focusing on uh, the refinement and the salvation of Israel and ultimately the deliverance of Israel and on 
the uh, judgment on Satan and on unrepentant men. And so, yes, that verse is often used for that. I do believe that that would be accurate. Um, you're jumping in the middle this is something where everything's on tape and so you'd actually you would be able to go back and, and get everything from the beginning we've actually been in class now since uh, I think the second week of February so second week of February and here we are the second week of July so we've been going at this for five months already so we're hoping to be done by the second week of September that's, that's, the, that's the target. Um, so here you have all of this. And, and remember, too, that as the, as the beast is coming onto the scene, he is also given authority. And he is given authority to fight against and overcome the saints. He is able to fight against them. He is able to defeat them. He's able to kill them. He's able to do all of that. Remember, it was the beast who was the one who was able to kill the two witnesses, those two guys who had been unkillable by anybody under any circumstances until the time of their ministry came to an end. And he was able to kill them, and everybody is going, this is the guy who can stand up against him. Which is interesting, because when you go back to chapter 6, and uh, I think it was under the sixth seal, here they are uh, trying to, you know, calling out to the rocks to fall on us and save us, shield us, protect us from the wrath of him who sits on the throne and from the lamb for who is able to stand. And now all of a sudden they've got a guy, here's our guy, we can put everything behind this guy. Who can stand up to this guy? He's able to take out all the people who have up to this point been untouchable. But for this guy, he's able to do that. And so people end up worshiping the beast, they worship the devil because he's the power behind the beast and they worship the beast because he's able to do all of these things and he's against God and so are they. And so we're on the same team and so we are going to put our allegiance with this guy. Well, the church saints are gone. You've got 144,000 Jewish evangelists running around who are also largely untouchable. And you have got all kinds of other people coming to saving faith during this time. That's correct. And we're going to get more into that too. Because the idea is, uh, the, the comment was he's only able to kill their earthly body. That's right in line with what Jesus said back in Matthew, right? Don't fear those who can only kill your body. 
You'd better be afraid of him who can kill your body and then kill your soul in hell. Yes, I tell you, you fear him, right? You fear God. God's the one you need to be afraid of. Not, not people who can do only so much to you, and that's the end of it. We're going to get that at the end of this chapter, in fact. And so here you have the worship that's being ascribed to him now. Verse 5, there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Now, 42 months is that magic number again, right? 42 months, 1260 days, a time, times, and half a time, which makes three and a half, not four. Yes, it's going to be a running joke for the next however long. And so again, you've got this idea that there is a fixed time with which this is going to work with which this is going to be possible. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. He has respect for nothing holy, nothing at all. Verse 7, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. So again, this is global power, global influence. All who dwell on the earth. Again, that's that kind of, who, who are the, those who all who dwell on the earth specifically? Which camp do they fall in? They are unbelievers. So anytime you see that phrase, He's talking about unbelievers. So all those who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. So again, what you're coming up on now is there is a very hard line that is drawn. And on one side of that line, there are those whose names are in the book of life who are redeemed. Now, that would also include those whose names are written in the book of life who haven't come yet. The ones who still, in the, in the remaining time, are going to come to faith. And then you have those on the other side whose names are not written in the book of life. They're the unredeemed, the ones who are always going to be unredeemed. And so you've got the two camps, the two sides. Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. What's missing from that phrase, by the way, relative to the book of Revelation? Have we seen that phrase before? If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And what was the rest of the phrase? I'll give you a hint. We, we read it seven times in chapters 2 and 3. At the end of every one of those letters... He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right? That's not here. I wonder why. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here's the perseverance in the faith of the saints. So, if it is being written 
with the idea of he who has an ear, let him hear. Who of the two sides, the ones written in the book, whose names are in the book of life, and the ones whose names are not, which one of them have the ability to hear? The saints do. So this is written to them. He who has an ear, let him hear. He who's destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. Who would be going to captivity? Say it louder. The ones that are not redeemed? Ah. Okay. Who's it written to? It's written to the saints. Who's being threatened with captivity? They are. And those who are destined for that, they're going there. Why would God want the saints to hear that message? Okay, so the idea here is, look, for some of you, bad things are coming. Bad things are coming. Because the beast has been given authority to be able to hunt you down and to overcome you. Which means some of you are going to go to prison. And if you have been destined for prison, you're going to prison. And by whose design are you going to prison? It is by God's. God's sovereign over that. And so if that's where you're going, what else can you count on? Grace to endure, exactly. My grace is sufficient for you. And so if you are one of those who is going to suffer that fate, then you're going to be given the grace that you need in order to endure and in order to do what you ought. And frankly, you'll be given the words to say. You'll be given what you need. Now he's going to take the flip side here with the next phrase. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. What's that getting at? Because again, who's that written to? The ones who have an ear, right? Which means those who are redeemed. So, what's that getting at? Why did Jesus check to see if Peter had a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane? Did he need a bodyguard? He did not need a bodyguard. Peter's not, I don't know if he's a real good aimer if Malchus just moved quick. 
But, you know, Peter lops off Malchus's ear. And what does Jesus tell him to do immediately? Put away the sword. Why? This is not the time to fight the battle, and frankly, that's not the battle to fight. What else did Jesus say? I could call down 12 legions of angels. Remember that one angel took out 180,000, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. So one angel would probably be sufficient to deal with anybody in the neighborhood at the time. I don't need that because I'm about accomplishing this over here. And frankly, Peter, you're interfering with what is to happen. And you're taking on, basically, you're playing God here, Peter, because you are trying to act contrary to what it is that I want to happen. So the reason Peter checked, or Jesus checked with him, do you have a sword? Good. I've got my object lesson waiting here now so that when this happens, Peter, that's not the right response here. Gunner? Well, and that's, so the point is, is that uh, resistance is futile because the beast has been given this authority, and in fact, there are a number of people. The underlying point behind it is this. Christianity is not advanced at the point of a sword. It's not advanced at the muzzle of a gun. You don't walk up and force anybody into the kingdom. You can't. The idea here is that it's a spiritual fight. And so with a spiritual fight, you bring spiritual weapons. And the point here is that, again, God is going to be glorified through his saints even when, and especially when, they are subjected to incredible affliction. I, I, I think at, at the end of time, you will be able to parade any set of circumstances, any set of circumstances, any depth of affliction, any depth of suffering that anybody has ever endured. And yet, 
you will also be able to look and see that the grace of God was sufficient for that person in that time. And that glorifies God. Because again, it magnifies him. His children are able to trust him. His children are able to trust his ways even when they can't understand why or how or when they don't know for how long, right? That's one of the killers, isn't it? When there's something going on, it's hard and there is no end in sight. The tunnel is dark. There's no light down there at the end. And I have no idea how long this is going to go or how long I'm going to have to hold on for. God's grace is sufficient. And we, are, and we can trust him. So again, the idea here, don't run counter to what God is trying to accomplish. You, ex you demonstrate faith by trusting God and taking him at his word. You demonstrate perseverance when you keep your shoulder under. And that is the word for perseverance here. It's hupomone. It's the backpacking term. It's keeping your shoulder under the load and keeping one foot going in front of the other and doing it in a manner in which you're not reviling, you're not cussing under your breath, you're not talking under your breath. You are moving forward. And you are trusting that God is going to give you the ability to put that next foot in forward and keep moving. Now, this is not going to happen. All right. What do we do here? Uh, we'll push ahead and see where we go. Verse 11, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. So I saw another beast. This is Alos, so this is another of the same kind. So this is going to be another person, and this person is going to be similar. He's going to be like the first one that was referred to, and that's going to be the beast, the Antichrist. And so here you have him coming up. And he's also a man. He's got a little bit of a different appearance, though. He's got two horns like a lamb. Now, how threatening is a lamb? Anybody ever been terrified by a lamb? Those cute little white fuzzy things? No, they're not terrifying. You've never seen a lamb given superpowers right? You've never heard anybody say, boy, I tell you what, I wish I could be a lamb and take that guy out. What are you going to do? Gum him to death? You know, come over and I'm going to rub my head against you. You know, they're absolutely non-threatening. So he's got two horns like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. So he's, he's, he's got a big mouth and he's got a mouth that has no problem making whatever boasts need to be made. He exercised all the authority of the first beast in his presence. 
And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. This keeps coming up in this chapter. The beast whose fatal wound was healed. Here it again, it's being repeated. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. So when you look at this guy, and I'm just going to tell you now, his name's the false prophet. What is the false prophet doing to those who dwell on the earth? Is he trying to draw attention to himself? No, he's not. Who is he trying to draw attention to? The beast. It's about the beast. He's going to have an image made, and that image is an image of the beast. So everything is going over here to the beast. Now, why am I jumping on that up and down? There is a holy trinity. There is a triune God. God the Father maker of heaven and earth. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit draw attention to himself? What does he do? It's about Christ, right? It's about the Father. It's about Christ. doesn't magnify himself. He's drawing attention to the other parts of the Godhead. Which part of the Godhead suffered the fatal wound? It was Christ. It was the Son. Satan is creating his unholy trinity. Satan wants to be who? Oh, yeah, right? He wants to be like the Most High, so he wants to be God the Father. The beast has a fatal wound which was healed. So he's kind of like Jesus now, isn't he? Because he was killed and he's come back to life. And then you've got this false prophet who's trying to get people to come over here and worship the beast. Worship the beast. Satan is mimicking God. He's trying to be like him in every way, except he's the anti-type, right? Because everything that God is, Satan's against. Because Satan wants to be God. And so what better way, if you want to counter, and I, if you want to counter the truth, what better way than to come up with something that's kind of like the truth? But you got just enough spin in here to where, uh, look, what makes a good deception? 
In fact, how do you know a deception is really working? People believe what you're saying is true. And so here you have, you know, again, do people know who Jesus is? Yeah, they do. The demons know who Jesus is, but we will not have this, we're not obeying this guy. We're not following this guy. So what better substitute than someone who just seems to be kind of like parquet, right? It's fake butter. It's not, you know, I can't believe it's not butter. Yeah, you can if you taste it, right? The whole thing behind margarine is it looks like butter, it kind of tastes like butter, and it acts like butter, kind of. So, oh, it must be. And what else, what other great quality does it have? It's cheaper, right? So there's all kinds of incentive here to buy into that and thinking, I'm getting the same thing. That's part of what Satan's trying to sell here. That's part of what he's trying to push. Does that make sense? All right, it's three after. We're not going to make it the rest of the way. Questions? Comments? Sam? Sam? Sam's point is uh, how frustrating it must be for Satan to have all of his well-laid plans made public long before they ever come to be. I mean, and who knows when he comes up with the idea. Uh, but again, we've got it and it's been on black and white for 2,000 years. <laughs> And you would think, right, it's already written. So wouldn't it make sense? I mean, if people would just read this, then they would understand, oh, I'm being sold a bill of goods. Except, how many of them read the Bible? And how many of them actually believe what it says? Right? So again, and, and in fact, God is sending them down this road. They're willingly going. Remember, we read that in 2 Thessalonians, right? He also sends them a deluding influence so that they choose to believe the lie. Gunner? I'm not repeating that for the tape. 
Well, um, we need to be careful in interpreting uh, those beasts from Daniel because they actually were given specific identification in Daniel. And so uh, the lion was a representation of Babylon, uh, the bear uh, was uh, the Medo-Persian, and then the leopard was Greece. Uh, when you go back and look at, at what they were in Daniel. As far as the same players coming back and forth, that is absolutely true. That's, that's uh, because again, uh, you had Babylon uh, as an anti-God empire. Um, and then we're going to run in, <coughs> excuse me, we're going to run into, you know, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. I think we're running into that um, coming up here in a couple of chapters, in a couple of weeks. And so, yeah, it's, it's not unusual to have the same actors showing up time and again. Gog and Magog, we looked at last week from Ezekiel, were prevalent in the Battle of Armageddon, and they're going to be prevalent in the last battle uh, against God at the end of the Millennial Kingdom, a thousand years apart. But it's the same people coming back. All right, now it's 10 after. All right, let's pray. Father, again, um, we are grateful that you are in control of all things, that history marches to your tune and marches to your timetable, to your schedule. And we are grateful that you cannot be surprised. You cannot be shaken. You cannot be, uh, your, your, your ways and your plans cannot be set aside. They cannot be turned back. And so we are grateful that, in fact, you are bringing all of history to your conclusion. And you win. And the other side loses entirely, completely fully for all time. And so, Lord, we worship you and we magnify you because you are the one almighty God. Help us to worship you aright today. In Jesus' name, amen.